true, you know, just as we can talk to God and tell him how we feel and ask him to help us when there's a need in our life, just as we can speak to him, he can also speak to us. In fact, Hebrews 13.8 says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He speaks now as he did then, just as he did to his disciples when he was here in the flesh and after, as he spoke to Paul and the apostles and his followers through his Holy Spirit and through his word, all throughout scripture, just as he spoke then, he still speaks today. He hasn't changed. He's the same. God is not mute. We, we might not always be listening, but God is always speaking, just as he always was. And of course, the primary means that we communicate with him in both directions, both in speaking and in hearing. And the primary way that he responds to us and acts on our behalf outside of his word is through prayer. I like to think of prayer as spiritual currency. It's our means of transaction between God and this world. And all throughout scripture, we see God acting on the behalf of others. Uh, You know, providing for people, changing circumstances, giving answers, meeting needs, healing minds and bodies, guiding and directing, comforting and reassuring others, all through prayer. All of these ongoing spiritual transactions in both directions happen through prayer. It is our spiritual currency, just as our national currency, like our paper money and our coins, uh, were once backed by something of great value and worth and power called the gold standard, actual stockpiles of gold that gave our dollar bill its worth and value and power to make transactions in the natural realm. Likewise, our prayer isn't simply empty talk or wishful thinking or meaningless meditation. It's actually valuable and powerful because of Jesus Christ, our living God, whose spirit lives inside all who believe in and follow after him. He's the reason that our prayer means something, that it means anything. He's the power and the value behind it and in it and through it and over it. He's the standard that gives our prayer worth. Of course, there are religions, both modern and ancient practices, that assign value to a metaphysical thought and meditation without anything behind it other than personal reflection and self-focus. In other words, there's no gold standard, right? The only basis for its effectiveness comes from discovering one's inner worth. And although that may be calming for some, for the Christian, the most unsettling idea on earth should be the idea that all that there is, the only good in this world is whatever happens to be inherently within us. Because if that's the case, we're all in a a lot of trouble. Our goodness, our righteousness, our worth, our value, our effectiveness, our power as followers of Christ resides in and only in Jesus Christ himself. And so because we have that standard, this basis to live by, this transcendent of our own inherent goodness or abilities, we can make transactions, spiritual transactions in the spiritual realm that translate into the natural through prayer. It really is an incredible uh, and unequaled gift, the spiritual currency, this ability to not only communicate with the God of the universe, but to be able to affect real change in the world by his power and ability through our prayer. It's just amazing. It's 
It's amazing, and yet as utterly as amazing and unique and immeasurable in value as the gift of prayer is, like so many of the other priceless gifts that he's given to us, I think that prayer is often treated like an emergency survival kit that we pull out when we are in dire straits and we've exhausted all of our other means for our provision and health and direction in life. Like we've, we've tried everything else and so we might as well try, uh, try praying about it, right? It's, it's like having a $100 bill in your wallet at the store when you're starving to death. And instead of using the currency that you have, the most effective means at your disposal to buy the food that you need, instead you try to beg and borrow and steal first. And then only after all of that fails and things are falling apart and you're about to collapse from starvation, you pull out the $100 that's been in your wallet the whole time and you get what you need. That's sort of how we treat prayer sometimes, where, where it should be our first response to every need and every struggle and every pain and every confusion, every desire, every frustration, every single day and every single breath of our lives should be infused with prayer. That's why Paul said pray without ceasing in 1 Thessalonians 5.17 because he knew that without it we could never be effective as Christians in this world. And so today as we close out this sermon series, James the Just, we're going to talk about prayer in a message entitled Five Keys to Powerful Prayer. As James closes out this letter with some instructions and a description of what powerful prayer looks like in our lives. As we read, you'll see he doesn't simply say pray. He says, pray like this. And then he gives us several attributes or types of prayer that are powerful and effective for everyday living, both in, in great and small needs. And so I find myself, when I read this passage of Scripture, often asking the question, do I pray this way? And if not, which of these keys to powerful prayer am I missing in my life? And I think that kind of reflection is good and it is necessary for all of us anytime we read and study and meditate on God's Word. And to be clear, this isn't some kind of formula or methodology. I get, I get sick of some of the things on Facebook and social media. You know, ten ways to do this, four things to do this, six ways you know this. You're tired of those lists a little bit like it's a formula. There is no magic formula for prayer. This is simply a list of attributes that you find in people's lives whose prayer is consistently powerful and effective, okay? So let's jump in together right where we left off last week in James chapter 5 at verse 13. And uh, we'll go ahead and read through verse 18 and then we'll go back and take a closer look at these five keys to powerful prayer. So James five thirteen it says, Is any among you suffering? Let him pray. Is any cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So right from the start, James says, if you're suffering, pray. He doesn't say, if you're suffering, wait to see if the pills work. Wait to see if the problems subside, or you figure a way out of it on your own first. And then if nothing else works, pray. 
No, he says, if you're struggling, pray. Doesn't mean you don't take the pills. If you go to the doctor and he, he gives you medicine, yes, take the medicine. Uh, if the problem goes away on its own, yes, be grateful that the problem went away. Yes, try to figure out a righteous way through your struggles. Yes to all of the above. But the very first thing that you should do and the constant thing that you should do throughout every struggle and strife and suffering is pray. You pray, you pray, you pray some more. Verses 17 and 18, it says, Elijah prayed for rain to stop and it did. And then he prayed again for it to rain and it did. But you'll notice it didn't immediately begin to rain. You can read about it yourself in 1 Kings 17 and 18. Jesus prays repeatedly in the Garden of Gethsemane just before he was crucified. When we're suffering in any way, our first and our constant course of action is to pray. And then once the answer, the solution, the healing, the provision comes, and you're cheerful again for what God has done in your life, James says, don't forget to praise Him for it. He says, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. And then he continues in verse 14, is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And so... In these first two verses about prayer, in this final section of James's letter, he's pointing us toward discipline in our prayer life. He says, if you're suffering, then pray. If you're sick, then call for the elders, which are the pastors, and let them pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. And when the answer, the provision, the healing comes, be sure to give God praise. In fact, earlier in his letter, in chapter 1, verse 2, James says, Count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It's right in line with Paul's teaching in Romans 3, 3 through 5. Excuse me, Romans 5, 3 through 5. He writes, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. In 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, Peter says, Rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So James and Paul and Peter are all saying the same thing. That even in the midst of our suffering, we still praise Him. This has to do with discipline. James is teaching us to make prayer and praise a discipline in our lives. Prayer should be our first course of action when we're struggling. And that means not only that we discipline ourselves to pray on our own behalf, which we should, but that we discipline ourselves to ask for prayer from others when we need it. James says, call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. And frankly, I've never understood. I've never understood those who won't allow other people to pray for them. A, um, a gentleman that I know was going to have some tests done for a potentially life-threatening condition in his brain a couple of years ago. And I was at a Bible study with him and his wife. And his wife brought it up and said that they were going to have these tests uh, done the next morning. And so I stood up and I walked over to him and I asked him, I said, may I pray for you? And he said, no, sir, you may not. I've taken care of that myself. Shocking to me. 
There's either a, a real lack of understanding of our responsibility according to God's word to ask for prayer when there's a need, or it's a very unhealthy pride that keeps us from asking. And either way, it isn't good, and it shows a potential lack of discipline in the area of prayer in our lives. And that's, a, that's really a dangerous place to live, because where prayer is not consistent, when we haven't made prayer a daily discipline in our lives, when we're not disciplined enough to call for the elders to come pray for us, there can be little expectation of effectiveness when we do pray. If we rarely ever talk to God, and rarely if ever listen for His voice, we can't really expect Him to leap into action the moment that we run into trouble and we start making these loud declarations about what He's going to do for us and take away all of our hardship. He's not a cosmic butler. He's not waiting around for us to give Him an assignment, some task to make our lives more comfortable. In fact, we exist for His good pleasure. We wait for His assignment to us the way that we're given that assignment, in addition to the word, is through disciplined prayer. But it goes even further than that. In 1 John 5, 14 and 15, John says, This is the confidence that we have toward him, that if anything we ask according to his will, he hears us. The according to his will is the part we miss sometimes. And, and then he says, And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we've asked of him. So if we want God to hear our prayers, a big part of that is praying according to His will. But we cannot pray God's will if we don't know what His will is. And we cannot know what His will is without daily disciplined prayer, along with the daily study of His Word, permeating every aspect of our lives. Prayer must become a daily discipline in your life if you, if you want to truly connect with God and see your prayers become powerful in affecting not only your life, but the lives of those around you as well. A.W. Tozer once said that to desire revival and at the same time to neglect personal prayer and devotion is to wish one way and walk another. I can't think of a better way to say it. Powerful and effective prayer requires a disciplined prayer life. And just before we move on to the next key to powerful prayer, I just want to mention that the oil that James says we should anoint the sick person with is a symbol. It's symbolic of consecration to God's use and service. And that comes in to the Old Testament in several places. Um, Exodus 28, 41, 29, 36. We see it all through. References to it in the New Testament. Luke 4, 18, Acts 27 and 10, 38. Uh, 2 Corinthians 1, 21. Hebrews 1, 9. It's all through Scripture. And so we use a, a drop of olive oil on the forehead or the hands when we pray for the sick here. We do that here. Not because we believe that there's any power for healing in the oil itself. Um, although oil was and still is used for medicinal purposes in some places in the world today. And I know that that's making some resurgence here. Uh, people who use oil for different things. So there may be some benefit there, I suppose. But we use it in prayer in church as a symbol of consecration and dedication to the Lord which is how James meant it here and how it was used in Scripture. Just as the bread and juice in communion are symbolic of the body and blood of Christ, so too the oil is used in prayer as a symbol of being set apart for God. As a matter of fact, uh, this is interesting. The ancient Hebrew word for the verb to anoint, or you shall anoint, 
is the word Mashak, which is the basic root of the word Messiah, which means anointed one. So just as we symbolically identify ourselves with the death and burial and resurrection of Christ when we're water baptized, so too we symbolically identify ourselves as being set apart or consecrated to him when we're anointed with oil. We know that it's not the oil ultimately that heals us. Rather, it is God alone. Because verse 14 says, to anoint the sick person with oil in the name of the Lord. So it is in him alone that we receive healing and it is in his name alone that we pray. Okay, let's move on now as we continue to verse 15. We find a second key to powerful prayer and another reason that we can credit God alone for our healing. Verse 15, James says, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. So the second key to powerful prayer that James outlines here is faith. In this specific instance, it's not faith on the part of the one being prayed for, by the way. It's the faith of those who are doing the praying. Again, he says, call for the elders of the church and let them, referring to the elders, pray over him, referring to the sick person, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord and the prayer of faith. Again, that's coming from the elders and uh, actually probably members of the congregation as, as well, as we'll see in a moment. He says, we'll save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. Okay, the prayer of faith is coming from the elders and others who are praying. It's not coming from the person who is sick and suffering. Of course, there are times in Scripture where we see faith on the part of the one who is sick or suffering playing a role in their healing. When the, the woman with the issue of blood had uh, faith to touch Jesus' robe for healing, she confessed to what she'd done after he questioned her and he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease, Mark 5.34. But listen, when he says, your faith has made you well, it's the Greek word sozo, which can either mean to heal or to save or both. And the use of it in this particular verse in Mark 5.34 is suggesting both physical and spiritual healing. So the woman's faith in Jesus for physical healing at the same time became faith in him for salvation from sin. And there's a correlation here to James 5 as well because as we'll see in a moment, James is not only addressing physical healing but spiritual healing as well. And of course, uh, we know that we're saved spiritually by grace through faith according to Paul in Ephesians 2.8. So it's not as if faith on the part of the person being prayed for is irrelevant. Of course not. Sure, it matters, but it's also not necessarily a requirement for our physical healing. As we see uh, Jesus and his disciples performing healing miracles on people at times who didn't even know who Jesus and his disciples were. People who were not following him or even asking for healing. All through the Gospels, Jesus healed people, total strangers with absolutely no mention whatsoever of any faith on their part. Jesus told a man with a withered hand in Mark 3 to come to him and he healed him, which was really almost an object lesson for the Pharisees. But the man wasn't following Jesus. He was already in the synagogue when Jesus walked in. In Acts 3, a lame man asks Peter and John for money. He wasn't asking for or express, uh, expressing faith for healing at all. He just wanted some money. And Peter performs a healing miracle in that man's body. You see, there are those who teach that your healing is dependent upon your faith. 
which is an aspect, by the way, of the doctrine of positive confession, which is false teaching. If our healing is solely dependent upon our faith, then why do we need Jesus and the cross? Right? Healing is a result of what he does. It is not a result of what we do. So faith on the part of the sick person is not a requirement. But what is clear is that those who are praying should believe in full faith for that healing. And yet it's not their faith that heals the sick person either. Rather, it is their prayer of faith that is the vehicle. It is the currency through which God performs the transaction of healing their sickness. In fact, in fact where there is great faith... And prayer combined, there is great power at work as a result, not because of us, but because the Holy Spirit is the power of God within us, and He responds to our faith in prayer. Uh, Years ago, it's probably been, uh, it's been over 20 years ago, I was having pain in my head, some severe pain, and I went to my pastor at the time where I was working at a church, and um, I, I went to the doctor, excuse me, first. And I had a scan done, a CAT scan or whatever they call it. And they came back and I was in the room and the doctor came in and he put the picture of the scan up on the thing. And he said, you see, that's where your eye is, your eye socket. And I said, yeah. And he said, do you see this large mass? And I said, yeah. And he said, that is a cyst that is as big or bigger than your eyeball residing back there right behind your eye. And it is not going to do you any favors if we leave it there. He said it looks benign, so we're not worried about cancer so much, but we probably need to get that out because it is putting a lot of pressure on your eye. And so as that continues to grow, you're going to begin to lose your vision and have all kinds of problems. And so he said, um, we're going to give you a prescription for this medication and you need to take it and come back in 30 days and we're going to take another scan because we want to try to assess how rapidly it's growing and we'll make a decision from there. The medicine will help relieve the pressure. Great. Went to the uh, drugstore and found out that I couldn't afford the medication, so I didn't buy it. So I didn't take any of the pills. I was just eating Motrin like candy for a month because of the pain. And three days before I was to go back to the doctor and have uh, another scan done, I went to the pastor of the church. It was a Sunday, and he invited people up for prayer if there were, there were any needs. And I told him what was happening. And he said, okay, I, just, I want you to know that I have a great sense of faith right now that God's going to heal you. I just believe God is going to heal you of this. And I said, great, because I didn't have much faith at all, to be honest. I was just kind of doing due diligence, figured I might as well get prayer before I go back to the doctor. And so I stood there, and I don't know why he did this, but I'll never forget it. He took his knuckle, I don't know what the meaning of that is, and he stuck it into my eye, and he prayed for me. And, and, And first of all, I literally felt some relief, some significant relief from that pressure. And I thought, well, that's kind of cool. And then we had the rest of the service. And three days later, I went back to the doctor and they put me in the thing and they did another scan. And I was sitting in the room and he walked in and he put the picture up on the, on the screen. And he said, do you see your eye socket? You see the mass there? And I said, yeah. He said, that's the picture we took 30 days ago. And then he put another one up next to it. And he said, do you see the eye socket there? And I said, yeah. He said, do you see the mass? I said, well, actually I don't. He said, I don't either. It's gone. That happened to me. Okay? Now, I know that that pastor didn't heal me. He didn't. Matter of fact, that pastor knows that he didn't heal me. God healed me 
through his faith that he had for healing for me. When we add great faith to prayer, it's like adding a flame to a keg of gunpowder. There's great power when great faith is added to prayer. Why? Because the Holy Spirit works through our faith. So it's not that our faith even is powerful. It's that God's power is expressed through our faith. That's the vehicle, the currency that he works through. Remember in verse 15, James says, The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. What does that mean? Well, guess what Greek word is used here for the word save? You guessed it. It's sozo. So the prayer of faith that will save the one who is sick probably has a spiritual connotation to it as well as a physical one. And again, we know that we're saved spiritually by grace through faith. It's not our faith that saves us. It's the grace of God that saves us through our faith. That's what Paul teaches us. Our faith is simply the vehicle through which God works. So all of of our faith, all of our reliance is upon Him and not on ourselves. Okay, And just to put an exclamation point on the fact that it is God alone who does the healing. James finishes verse 15 with, And our faith will raise Him up. That's not what he says, is it? He says, The Lord... The Lord, you can underline that in your Bible. The Lord will raise him up. Through our faith, as we pray, the power of the Holy Spirit is at work, which means that faith is an important element of powerful prayer. But we must always keep in mind that it is not our faith that does the work or the oil that does the work or anything else that does the work because that distinction belongs to God alone. All right? So disciplined prayer, faith-filled prayer are two keys to our prayers being powerful and effective. The third comes in verse 16. And so let's keep reading and we'll just read the first half of verse 16. It says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So the third key to powerful prayer is confession. We have to be willing to confess our sins to one another if we're to expect our prayers to be effective. James says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Why? That you may be healed. In other words, if you want your prayers for healing in your life to work, if you want them to be effective, make sure and take care of any unconfessed sin that may be in your life first. Do that first, because although not all sickness or disability is a direct result of our sin, which Jesus makes clear in John 9, 3, it is also clear in Scripture that some sickness can be a direct result of our sin. In 1 Corinthians 11, 29 through 31, Paul says, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, that's a reference to the body of Jesus Christ. And we as Christians, we are the body of Christ. And so Paul says, as Christians, when we fail to live like Christians are supposed to, when we fail to properly discern the body of Christ, when there's sin in our lives, he says that person eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. And then this is an amazing statement. He says, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. If we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. In other words, if we took care of our own sin through confession and repentance, many who are sick and dying wouldn't be sick and dying. That's an amazing statement. It was in the context of those who were taking communion when their lives were full of sin, which, which, by the way, should also be a stark reminder for all of us of the gravity of the sacraments that we observe in church. It's not just a nice little thing when we drink that juice and eat that bread. There is profound weight to the sacraments that we've been commanded to take in church. 
Why? Because God doesn't take sin lightly. And neither should we. And so in keeping with the teachings of Jesus and the other disciples, James says, if you want your prayers to work, if you want them to be powerful, confess your sins to each other. Now, look, he didn't say get up in front of the church and announce your sins to everyone. He didn't say confess your sins to a priest. He didn't say confess your sins to unbelievers. He said confess your sins to one another. He's talking about other members of the church. The phrase to one another is the Greek word alone. It's a reciprocal plural pronoun. It, it literally means mutually or reciprocally. It's mutual behavior one to another. So he's saying we're supposed to hold one another accountable, which includes confessing our sins to each other, to other believers, not to unbelievers, not announcing our sin before large groups of people. Um, there could be exceptions to that if a, if a pastor were stealing money from the church, from the congregation, uh, if that sin is directly against the entire group, it would be completely appropriate for him to stand up and confess to the whole group. But So there may be exceptions, but generally speaking, confession is not done from the individual to a group. It's done mutually between individuals within the body of believers. Okay, We don't confess to a priest so that he can absolve us of our sin. Why? Because only God can absolve us of our sin. So we're to confess our sins within our relationships, among the body, uh, among the church, and then we confess our sins to God, by the way, generally in that order. 1 John uh, 1.9 says that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we always confess our sins to God, but we also confess to one another, as James points out, for the purpose of, being, of uh, helping each other to abstain from sin through mutual accountability. And if our sin is against someone else specifically, then we confess that sin to that person that we've sinned against where, where possible. Uh, Matthew 5, 23 and 24, Jesus said, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So we're actually supposed to confess and be reconciled to one another before we bring it to God. That's how important this confession business is. And that agrees with James' point that we should confess to one another if we want our prayers from God to be answered. We should confess to one another first so that he will hear and answer those prayers. Uh, Peter says, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. 1 Peter 3, 7. In other words, if you want your relationship with God to be good, first, see to it that your relationship with each other is good. And we're, we're talking, of course, about uh, believers here. When an unbeliever initially comes to Christ, that confession is to God first. But when we're talking about confession amongst followers of Christ, we confess to one another first, and then we confess to God. And the result of that is he hears our prayers, and he responds. He brings healing, certainly spiritual healing, and often physically as well. There is power in our prayer when we first confess our sin and then remain accountable to one another. And by the way, when James says confess your sins uh, to one another and pray for one another, 
That's clear evidence that we not only have the elders or pastors to pray for us, but that the entire congregation is to pray for one another. It's not just a priestly duty for the pastors. And so it's expected, of course, that the elders and pastors uh, will be there involved. Probably a special place in that prayer time will be called to pray for the sick, but that in no way precludes other faithful believers from coming and praying for the sick as well. We're supposed to do that, okay? It's something that we're all directed to do together as a body, all right? Let's keep reading. The rest of verse 16 says, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So the fourth key to powerful prayer is righteousness. And I won't spend too much time on this point because it's really an extension of confession. It's part of the same process. When we confess our sins to one another as a part of the process of accountability, we're restored to one another. When we confess our sins to God, He makes us righteous and we're restored to Him. And this is one of those absolutes in Scripture that the postmodern worldview rejects. But Scripture is clear. Only God can absolve us from a sin and make us righteous. There's no other way. There's no other way. James says the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So powerful prayer depends on righteousness. Righteousness depends on confession and repentance before each other and before God as we place all of our faith in Jesus Christ. There's no other way. There's no other path to righteousness. It's an absolute statement that is absolutely true. The Old Testament proves that the human race has never been good enough on its own. We can never follow enough rules or pay enough penance or perform enough good deeds to ever be righteous on our own. And I love what Paul says. This is one of my favorite passages. He lays it out in Romans 3, 21 through 26. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's a whole lot about Him and His righteousness and the fact that His righteousness is a gift that only He can give. So confession and repentance of our sins along with our faith in Christ means that we get to receive the righteousness of God. And I hear people who openly reject Jesus Christ and the gospel. I hear people that openly deny the faith. But as soon as a friend says they're sick or going through a hard time, some of those same people will say to that friend, uh, you know, you're in my thoughts and prayers. And that sounds nice, but it isn't worth much, honestly. Because there's no power in the prayers of the unrighteous, according to Scripture. Yet James says the prayer of a righteous person has what? Great power as it is working. Okay? Let's keep reading uh, verses 17 and 18. 
Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. And we'll come back to these verses in a moment. But just to finish out the chapter, James simply summarizes the overall theme of his letter in these last two uh, verses. He says, My brothers, if anyone among you is wander, uh, wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So in keeping with his theme, in the last two verses, James says, keep each other accountable. Hold one another uh, to the standard that you've been taught. Protect each other, correct each other, love each other, guide one another back to the way of Christ when one of you wanders from it. And then in the preceding two verses, 17 and 18, we find the fifth and final key to powerful prayer, which is fervency. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He was, he was like we are. And he prayed fervently. I know that's not a word that we use much today. But it has a simple and yet very great meaning. When James says that Elijah prayed fervently, that's the Greek word prosuke, which refers to a Hebrew saying that literally meant to pray with prayer. It's best translated into modern English as to pray earnestly. So true prayer, fervent prayer, is earnest prayer. So in other words, Elijah, uh, put simply, prayed like he meant it. Elijah prayed like he meant it because, of course, we know he did. And when we pray without fervency, when we pray without earnestness, we're asking God to care about something that we care little about. Why would he do that? David Gusick writes, effective prayer must be fervent, not because we must emotionally persuade a reluctant God, but because we must gain God's heart by being fervent for the things he is fervent for. It is being passionate about that which God is passionate about and praying to that end according to his will with every fiber of fervency that we can muster. But simply, if you want your prayer to be powerful, then pray God's will be done and pray it like you mean it. Pray it like your life depends on it. Pray it like your brothers' and sisters' lives depend upon it. Pray it like it's the last prayer that you'll ever be able to pray. When you pour your heart and mind into prayer with all fervency, with all earnestness, after you've confessed your sins and received the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, and you exercise disciplined prayer in your life, and you do it often with all earnestness, you can watch your prayers go from being hopeful to powerful. Powerful. 